Hey everyone, my name's Jen. I'm a licensed minister, a certified trauma-informed coach, and your host. Today we're here to save the pain. Say the Pain, a podcast brought to you by New Course Coaching, a trauma-informed coaching company focused on trauma recovery. Welcome back, everyone. It's been a little bit longer than usual, but that's just because we did an early release of our previous episode. And if you didn't catch that, that was episode six of Veterans Journey by Isaac Lopez. And if you haven't caught any of the ones before that one, you should go listen because they have been great. But I'm excited that we are back with another exciting guest. So today we have Ajiani Reed joining us from the great state of Minnesota, but Ajiani is not originally from Minnesota. She is from Brazil, but I got to meet Ajiani when I was in school in Minnesota and her and her husband are currently instructors at Apostolic Bible Institute. While I was in school, she was just coming on staff. She's also involved in ladies ministries in her local local congregation as well as on a state level. And then her and her husband work in connecting prayer resources throughout the state of Minnesota. And then beyond that, she works in the financial department at a senior housing unit. And then let's see, I keep just adding to everything that you do. So beyond that, mother of one young man that is currently with us and then another that has gone on. And we're here today to talk a little bit about her son that has passed and his name is Stephen. But Pedro was just a youngin when I first met him. And now he has graduated from school. So I feel like an elder these days. But Ajiani, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today on Say the Pain. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Well, did I miss anything in your bio? Is there anything else that needed to be added? No, this is good. This is good enough. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) You did a good job. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I did talk a little bit how you are from Brazil, but there's a transition from Brazil to Minnesota. (laughs) Right. So... I come from Brazil, the state of Bahia, where it's very warm, the sun shines every day, and I came to cold Minnesota, where I only see the sun twice during the summer. I feel like it. <laughs> Not far from the truth. Uh, yeah, so I've been here since 1994. When I came to Bible school, not knowing any English, and that in itself is a story, I went straight into the classroom, and I graduated four years later from the Apostolic Bible Institute. So it's quite a transition from Bahia to Minnesota. 
And that's where you met your husband. That's correct. So when I came from Brazil, and that's where I feel like uh, our story began, is I felt a desire to work on the mission field, even when I was in Brazil. And I just didn't know how that was going to come about. But then I came to Bible school and my husband had already graduated from the Apostolic Bible Institute. And he had gone to another college and graduated there as well in the IT area. He had graduated from Northwestern College at the time. And he was just attending the church here when I came and we met and I found out that he was a missionary kid and we fell in love and we got married. I thought this is the path that God is taking us for sure to go into the mission field. After I graduated in 1998, we talked about missions all the time. So I graduated in 98, but we didn't go into the mission field until 2003. So that was five years talking about missions. I mean, everything was missions. We promised each other not to ever talk about missions again, and that would last about 10 minutes. And we'll go back to talking about it because we had such a desire. In 2003, finally, the day came when we received a letter from four missions. And in this letter, his parents had put an appeal that they needed somebody to help them in the country island of Fiji. And I am the one at home that receives the mail and sort through the mail. And when I received that, I knew that that was the place for us to go. That God had finally opened the door for us to go to Fiji. But because I knew that, I got scared. Mm. And I didn't tell my husband <laughs> until nighttime. <laughs> so when we were both in bed, I asked him, are you sleeping yet? And he said, not anymore. <laughs> and so I told him that his parents had put an appeal on the four missions newsletters and that they needed help in Fiji. He got up, couldn't go back to sleep, prayed all night. And so we began to deputize to raise funds to go to Fiji. So we arrived in Fiji in August 2003 to help brother and sister Kenneth Reed with the mission field. They needed to come to the U.S. to raise funds for deputation to return to the field. And we were to stay there um, and take care of the work until they were able to go back with the finances they needed. So when I arrived in Fiji, it were the two of us, and then our son Pedro was a toddler. He was two years old, and we had 13 suitcases, and we had even ramen noodles in that suitcase because oh. I wasn't sure what we would eat as soon as we got to Fiji. After we had been in Fiji for a little bit, we felt like we wanted to become Korea missionaries, and we started the process. But during that time, we also decided to have another child. I never wanted to have an only child. I always thought it would be unfair for my child to be an only child. Every child needs another child to play with and to do all the things that they do. So we decided to have another child. And when we started trying, we had a little difficulty. But I finally learned that I was expecting. And two months into the pregnancy, I started having issues with the pregnancy and I started having to go to the doctors more often. They put me on 
bed rest, um, they start mentioning the possibility that the child would have issues that I should consider terminating the pregnancy sooner than later because after so many weeks, they would not be able to do that. That was not even an option for us. So we just kept on and I went on bed rest and I was from January to July, I never got out of bed except for food and the bare necessities, but I was in complete bed rest trying to save our baby. Wow. Uh, during that time, yeah, it was a long, a long time to be in bed in Fiji and my mother-in-law, thank God, had some books that I was able to read and that kept me occupied some, but the baby wasn't growing. He was like a kilogram when he should be a little bigger. And his bones were behind, like his femur, his femur bone was smaller than what it should be for so many weeks. And parts of his body was within the size that they expected, but parts of his bones were not. So, and we knew that there was a major issue there, but I always thought you know, God is not going to take us from Brazil. And knowing that we both had a desire to go into the mission field and send us to Fiji to just send us back home. That was not even a thought in my mind. I just thought, you know, once the baby's born, he's going to be fine. We'll treat him. We'll give him enough food. He'll grow. And I was just so certain of that, that uh, one of the people in Fiji told me he was in prayer and he told me that God had given him a scripture for me and the scripture was in Romans it's I believe it's 8 15 that talks about the spirit of fear and I was like thanks but I'm not afraid I wasn't afraid at the time but when Stephen was born on July 10 of 2005 I learned what fear meant it, he he looked so bad. He was so yellow and around his mouth and nose, it was purple and blue. And he has he had extra fingers in both of his hands and his head was malformed. And he had what I learned later was a pectus ex excavatum, which when he would braid his uh, chest would just would just sink. In, and it was very deep and he was really scary to look at. I kept him folded very well into blankets so that when people came to see him, all they could see was basically his eyes, nose and mouth because when he was like that, he wasn't so bad. But when we took the blankets off, he really didn't look good at all. So we took Stephen to the doctor in Fiji and... The doctor would tell us there is a, a specialist, a pediatrician that is coming. We don't have one here in Fiji. He travels through the islands and he'll be here soon. And we waited for this specialist for over a month to see him. In the meantime, the pediatrician at the hospital told us, you are young, just let him die and have another child. And that was not an option for us. So you wanted to fight the life of our little guy. The specialist, when he finally arrived, he looked at Stephen and he basically wanted to use him as a guinea pig. He wanted to 
cut his head open and do unnecessary surgeries and tests and this and that. And when we told him that no thanks, but no thanks, we are going to take our son back to the U.S. He was very offended and he told us that Stephen would not amount to anything he would never contribute anything to society. He told us that he was going to be just a vegetable and basically that he wasn't worth the living. And my father-in-law was with us in that hospital visit. And when we walked out of the doctor's office, my father-in-law sat in the lobby of the hospital and he just sobbed. He cried and he cried. And I didn't know how I felt. I was numbed. I didn't have any emotions. I couldn't cry. I couldn't. I just had no emotions. After that visit, we knew that we were not going to find much help for Stephen. We tried to stay on the field because we had dreamed about missions for so long. And we thought there was an answer to prayer that God had brought us to Fiji to minister there. God was doing great things. We were working mainly with the children. And we just loved them very much. And it was hard to say, to say goodbye. But as we waited for help from somebody in Fiji. Stephen got very dehydrated. He wasn't able to eat because what he ate went into his lungs. So he started having issues with his lungs and he just didn't want to eat anymore because it was painful. So he got dehydrated and we were losing him. We we're losing him very quickly within the two months that we stay in Fiji. So we called a travel agent and we told him the situation. We need to fly back home as soon as possible because a child is not well. We need to fly out of here. And he got flights for us within the week. So we would have about five days to get ready to fly back to the U.S. And uh, while we were waiting on that, Stephen ended up in the hospital in Fiji. Now, Fiji has, at the time, they had two main hospitals, and one of them was the Suva Private Hospital, and that's where I had Stephen, and that's where I took him to see the specialist and the pediatrician. And then they had the public hospital. Now, when Stephen got very sick just before we flew out of the country, the only place where we could find bed for him was at the Suva Public Hospital. And if you can think of a home that you'd see on a horror movie. That's what the hospital looked like. Wow. It looked like an abandoned mansion, doors broken, walls dirty. It was absolutely disgusting. And Stephen went into the PQ in Fiji and pity corner from him, there was a child that passed away while we were there with tuberculosis. And during the time that he was at the hospital, I laid on the floor on a sheet, you know, sheet from bed, no chairs to sit, no pillow, nothing. I just laid on the floor and the cockroaches and everything else shared the floor with me. I actually had to clean his warmer because he still had the blood and milk from the previous child that had laid in that warmer. 
And so while we were there waiting for tickets for a flight, you know, the time to fly back home, this one doctor that wanted to use him as a guinea pig, he told us that he would not allow us to fly to take Stephen out of the hospital because he felt like Stephen wasn't well enough to fly. We were just done. We were just done. We wanted to get a child and bring him home. So during that time, the church in Fiji did what they call a lovo. And a lovo is actually a meal that is cooked underground. So you make a hole and throw some rocks, heat up the, the rocks and throw the pork and everything you want to cook, cover it up with dirt, and then cook the meal that way. Well, it happens to be the favorite meal for the Fijians. That's, uh, they love their meal, they'll do anything for that meal. So the church had done that for us, and I didn't go. They were just wanting to say their goodbyes, their farewell. And I wasn't able to go because I was in the hospital with Stephen. And uh, my husband brought this meal to the hospital. They sent this whole meal to the hospital. And the nurses just went crazy over the lovo. <laughs> and so while they were eating the lovo, we picked up Stephen from the PQ. We got in the car and we got out of the hospital as quickly as we could. <laughs> wow. So we drove as quickly as we could from Suva to, I believe we caught a flight in Nandi airport. And I think it was just a miracle from the Lord because we were so afraid that somebody would follow us and take a baby from us. But we made it to the airport and we flew to LA and we got to LA. Now, during this whole time, I was going through severe depression. I couldn't quit crying. I just cried, 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 cried and cried. And I don't think I was ever suicidal, but my mother-in-law would not allow me to stay alone at home. She would always have somebody with me. And I would feel at times this uh, dark cave just engulfing me. And it was just the most terrible feeling I ever had in my entire life. So we came to the U.S. and that's where my healing began. And that's why I mentioned I was in deep depression. Because when we got to the L.A. airport, our son Pedro, a toddler, was asking for a balloon. And I was telling him we don't have American currency, we only have Fijian money, so we can't really buy a balloon for you. And this lady heard us talking about it, and we had already left the spot where we had been. We had gone to the second floor to get food at McDonald's, and she went all over the airport looking for us, and she found Found us and she gave a balloon to Pedro. And that's when I realized people care. And you know, something as simple as that, it started the process of my healing. I started believing in people again, that they care, that they see that, you know, people are hurting and they want to do something. And something as small as giving a balloon to a child makes a huge difference. And so we finally arrived back home. When we got to Minnesota, we went to Children's Hospital and we spent two weeks at Children's. And during that time, they were finding all the things that were wrong with Stephen. I mean, he um, he had so many issues. His lungs were compromised by all the food that had gone into it. 
He had terrible acid reflux. It was just so many uh, things that he had wrong with him. And he was in the hospital for two weeks and they put a feeding tube through his nose. They sent us home and a week later we were back in the hospital for three more weeks. And the doctors started talking about doing a more permanent feeding tube. Up to that moment, we still thought, we, we were still hoping that things would change. Finally, we realized that that was the way to go because the feeding tube through the nose is very irritating. And with his acid reflux, it didn't help any. He was constantly gagging and the tube was there. So we went through the process of um, putting the feeding tube, the GJ, what they call, and it was the G will put medication to go into his stomach and the J was for the feeding that had to go straight into his intestines because he was so sensitive to food. What was his official diagnosis and when did you receive that diagnosis? So they gave us an official diagnosis probably six months after we arrived in the, in the U.S. And I think the doctors were just so focused on learning about his disability, of figuring out what the diagnosis was and all that. They really couldn't pinpoint what was wrong with Stephen, but they found a doctor. I think he was from Wisconsin, and he thought he had seen a child like Stephen, and he gave Stephen the diagnosis of uh, Debarsi syndrome, which is a branch of progeria, and progeria is the aging syndrome. Usually, the children look like... Um, little old men and little old women, even though they are just children. And Stephen had some things like his bones were fragile and he had some of the things that would fit in under that description. But there were a lot of other things that we always thought that he didn't fit in with that specific syndrome. One of the things is that the Debarsi syndrome children have problems with their hearing. And that was probably the best part of Stephen's body was his hearing. He could hear everything. He was a very light sleeper. He woke up very easily. There were many other things like that. And then he had problems of his own, some things that the Debarsi children didn't suffer with, and he did. So it was hard hearing that initial diagnosis because until that point, I still felt like there was a fluke and he will grow out of it or he will get better. We can get help for him somehow. So receiving the diagnosis made it very final. And I think that our faces kind of showed something to the doctors because they asked us, you hate us, don't you? I said, no, I don't hate you. I say, it's just that it feels very final. And it's hard to receive that. It's hard to come to a place where you put a stamp on your child and say, this is it. But then years later, just before he passed, we took him to Gillette a lot because of all his bone needs, all his issues with his bones and muscles and things. 
So the one of the final visits in, at Gillette, they sent us, they always send us with this description of the visit, what time we visited and about the child. And, and in that one particular paper, they wrote that they really didn't know what his syndrome was. They admitted that they didn't know what his syndrome was. But I don't know if that went anywhere because by that time, you know, he was declining and he passed. It really didn't matter anymore. Mm. Through all the good medical care and support in Minnesota, Stephen was able to have several good years considering all the issues that he had, all the things that were wrong with him. He was able to have several very good years and he was the happiest little one i ever met there was not one bad day for steven and no matter how bad he felt he always had a smile on his face he would just laugh and he was just such a bright sunshine in our lives many of the children in school loved him there was a little one at the school where he attended that suffered depression and he befriended Stephen and Stephen was really a good therapy for him. And during that time, the teachers allowed this little one to go into the classroom and spend time with Stephen during his break because Stephen was really helping him through his severe depression. Wow. There were so many lives that he touched. Everybody knew him. Everybody loved him. But then in 2010, so by that time, Stephen was five years old. In 2010, he started having issues. I noticed that he started just breaking out in sweats, turning gray. We took him to the hospital several times. They didn't know what it was until by that time it was March 2011. Wow. I noticed that he's left arm was swollen and I thought maybe he had heart issues and we took him to the doctor and the doctor told us his bones have been broken for two weeks and he was already healing by the time we noticed anything different wow. and uh, from there on we realized that his calcium was so low that he could have passed very quickly because of the calcium level being so low and uh that whole year of 2011, well, we stayed in pretty much in the hospital for the whole year. We would come home for a week and go back to the hospital. I spent another month and a half, come home. But I don't think there was one bone in his body that was not broken. His bones were just so frail that he was just breaking. We couldn't touch him and he would break. His legs were broken. His ribs were broken. So the doctors put him on this spike cast that it went from his neck to basically his foot. It was very intense, the care of him on that spike cast so that he would not get sores inside of the spike cast. And he was in it for about six weeks or so, which felt like it was forever. So it we took the spike cast off and I brought him home. And I was so excited that he was finally out of the spike cast that I asked his PCA at the time if she could stay with him and I'll take my other son, Pedro, someplace to just spend some time with him because that's another thing about having a child with a special special needs. Your healthy child gets 
forgotten, not on purpose, but the one child that is a special needs demands so much of your time and attention and, and just your energy. So I went with Pedro. I took him out to a park or something. I, I maybe swimming. And I got home and the van was gone and my heart just sunk. I knew something was wrong. And I called my husband and I say, what happened? And he said he fell from the bed and broke the femur again. So we had not gone even 24 hours without the spike cast, and he was put into a new spike cast. And during the second season on the spike cast, he had a gallbladder attack. He had to remove his gallbladder, and his bones start breaking inside of the cast. So the doctors felt like it's not really not doing any good because he's breaking inside of the cast. So it was quite a season, and. Finally, in December, the hospital said, we cannot send him home with you without nursing here. And um, that's when pediatric home service came into, you know, our lives. And Margaret, his nurse, came into our lives, which she was a godsend. Through that, Margaret, knowing that Stephen loved church, she started taking him to church and she became part of the church. And then she actually started telling her her family in Imbu, Kenya, about the Lord. And because of her testimony and Stephen's testimony, there is a church today in Imbu with many, many people attending it, a lot of young people attending that church. I think that part of this story is really neat because our desire was to do missions work. And here we were in the U.S. and the missions work was accomplished. Wow, that's amazing. So they start meeting under an avocado tree. It was really amazing. I mean, there is so many pieces to Stephen's story that it's kind of hard to know which direction to go. But to just so briefly ex explain how that came about, they start meeting under this avocado tree because the churches start growing, people start coming, and uh, I was given also the opportunity to serve as uh, the representative for Minnesota of ABLE Ministries, and one of the ladies' retreats here, I was asked to talk about ABLE, and I told the story about the church starting because of Stephen in ABLE, Kenya. That story got to our headquarters, and they asked me to write an article for our magazine, and once that article went out, Two pastors in Minnesota reached out to me and said, how can we help? We want to build a church for them. So there is a church there now, and we are working on getting somebody to serve as a pastor. They don't have someone yet as a, as a pastor. Different ones have been helping. But it's a really amazing, amazing thing what God has done. Stephen was how old when Margaret came into the picture? So he came home December of 2011. So he was six years old when he came home with the nursing services. I believe Margaret joined us a year later. 
she had some things, personal things going on that she wasn't able to join us when she was supposed to join us. So other nurses came in, but then as soon as she was able to come, she became one of Stephen's nurse. And their relationship was just phenomenal. I mean, Stephen loved Margaret. He loved her. To the place where Margaret asked me if something should happen to a family, she wanted to keep him. Mm. And that is in our will that if, which now it doesn't matter anymore, but we actually put in our will that if something happened to us, we would like Stephen to be with Margaret and that she'll be the one responsible to find a place for him or keep him, whatever she wanted to do. So they had a beautiful relationship. Margaret told me that Stephen would just look at her and communicate with her through his eyes, just the look. He knew exactly what she was feeling. And sometimes you just laugh at her and uh, make her feel silly for being feeling sorry for herself. Or what she has such a cute way to ex express herself about her relationship with Stephen. But it was very precious. And I think she hurt just as much as we did when he passed. When did he pass? What was the date? So he passed November 20th of 2018. So he passed five years ago. So he had, it's interesting because of Able Ministries, I was reading these books to be able to minister to parents with children of special needs. And I picked up this book, Sweet Pain, by uh, David Norris, David and his wife, Nancy. And I read their book and their child was exactly like Stephen. The issues that he had, uh, the love for life, everything. It was exactly like Stephen. And in the book, they mentioned that when he turned 13, he declined very suddenly and they lost him. Well, I had read that book when Stephen was 11. And at that time, Stephen was doing beautiful. And I thought, oh, Stephen is doing well. My husband would say, oh, Stephen will live a long life. We'll keep him for a long time. He's doing great, you know. But then July 10th of 2018, Stephen turned 13. And once a year, we'll take a week vacation or two. And would leave him with his nurses just to have a chance to reboot and reconnect with our other child, Pedro, do fun things with him. And when I left, he always knew when we were leaving and he would give me this sad face. And I was like, Stephen, don't give me this sad face because I know when I'm gone, you are completely spoiled. <laughs> All the nurses, I would come home, the house would be filled with balloons and they would, you know, chat with me every day, would check on Steven or phone calls and whatever. But he gave me a look that made me really sad. And halfway through our trip, I wanted to come home so bad. But I thought I can't because I have Pedro and he needs me too. I have my other son that needs me too. We'll just finish the trip and we'll go home. Well, halfway to the trip, Stephen got sick and 
he had a lot of issues with his lungs and breathing and he would get pneumonia and we had a process every time that he got sick like that we would call his doctor and we had an awesome doctor and he would just prescribe all the medication he needed and we would start the nabs and give him all the medication he needed and he would come right back up well the nurses kept updating me as the week went by uh that he got somewhat better but not completely well and then he got sedative and then the sedative he was treated for that but then he got pneumonia again and it was just this back and forth of sickness and we would take him to the hospital and the hospital would say he's fine and send us home and that started like beginning of August and we were in and out of the hospital during that season one time we took him he was just crying he was not well we knew he was not well we knew that he was declining and that his health was declining and uh, we took him to the hospital and as the doctor they actually took someone out of the room because they had so many people in the hospital they took somebody from the room to put steven in and as we transferred steven from the wheelchair to the bed he started laughing and I told the doctor, I say it's hard. I, I say, I know it's hard for you to believe that this child is very ill, but he is. That was just the kind of child that Stephen was. I guess the hardest thing for us was when he lost his personality. Mm. He stopped laughing. He also had a very strong cough that I think this strong cough kept him alive for so long because he was able to cough out all those things from his lungs. But when he lost his cough and when he lost his personality, he was already gone. He's, uh, he would look at us with this very vague eye, with this very vague look. And he was like, if his body was just if his uh, syndrome was just crushing on him and just um, just basically destroying his body, destroying him. And it was very difficult for us to see, especially uh, he loved the school bus. It was his favorite thing was to go to school. And when he was gone from school for so long, his teacher came home and... Um, he had awesome teachers. They were so good. And she came home to do school for him, but he didn't really enjoy. He wasn't interested anymore. He was done. And there was just a matter of time when the doctor told us that if I were you, I would tell your friends and family that if they want to see Stephen, they should come because he probably doesn't have more than two days to live. And I sent out a text to our friends and I told them, this is what we heard. We have about two days with Stephen. If you want to see him, come, come and see him. The doctor asked me, he was still in the PQ at the time. And uh, he asked me, do you want people to come if you want, 
if you want them to come, that was pre-COVID, he said, you open the exception for people to come and see him. I say, you know, if I were deciding for myself, I probably would say, no, I'm okay. But knowing Stephen, he wants everybody here. He wants all his friends. He wants everybody that he knows, everybody that loves him to come. And I came home that night. It was horrible. I had to break the news to Pedro, who was at that time 17 years old, and he was trying to process his grief. And he ended up running to the room and shutting the door. And I sat in the living room and I just cried. I didn't know what to do. Later, he told me, Mom, I am going to the hospital and I'm not coming back until Stephen passed. So the next day we went to the hospital, both of, both of us had our suitcases with us to stay there for the remainder of the time, however long it took, we were going to stay there. And uh, that morning, that Tuesday morning, Stephen passed with all his friends around him. I think his entire body was covered with hands. Everybody wanted to be touching him when he passed. I mean, we all were touching his head, his toes, his stomach. I mean, it was really a beautiful, if we can say that passing is beautiful, was really a beautiful experience. One of his favorite teachers from public school was there. His nurse was there. Margaret was there. Uh, many of the ministers from Bible school and church were there, friends. A lot of people were there to honor him. Was Stephen a vegetable? Absolutely not. Did he contribute to society? Absolutely. You better believe it. He touched lives on his funeral service. I had so many people, we had about 200 people in the church that came. And I only did one hour of visitation because I thought, oh, nobody will come. Or oh, not many people will come at least, you know. But we had over 200 people in his funeral and it was a beautiful service. And uh, the stories I heard, people that I didn't even know. They came because of Stephen, not because of me or my family. They came because of Stephen. Stephen meant something to them. And that was, it was just very beautiful. It was very beautiful. But even as you said, like in the U.S., he was touching lives around the world. He was, he was. His teachers, they actually retired after he passed. They used to tell us the only reason that they were staying in the school was Stephen. He was the reason why they were still teaching in the classroom because he was such a ray of sunshine and it, he brought them such joy. I thought, oh, every you know, teachers say that about every child because they love the children that they teach and all that. But actually, after Stephen passed, both of them did retire. They left the school, and uh, like I said, the little boy and the church that was started and the church family here 
it was incredible. I mean, when Stephen passed away, a, a whole church grieved. Uh, a community grieved. People at my work grieved. Uh, it was like a huge loss. He did make a difference in many people's lives. He, he taught us, you know, so many things. I, I, sometimes when we are having a, bit, a bad day, I think I have nothing really to complain about. My little guy never, I don't think he ever had one day without pain his body, without burning from acid reflux, without all the challenges, but he was always ready to give people a good laugh, a good smile. A police officer drove by one time and he was just walking around the parking lot with Margaret, his nurse, and the police officer just wanted to talk to Stephen. And the children many times just wanted to talk to Stephen. And uh, he really was a very special, very, very special little guy. He, I believe that only, only heaven will really reveal how many lives he really touched. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no life is a wasted life. Every life counts. Yeah. Everyone counts. Sometimes all you can do is to give somebody a smile, and that's basically what Stephen did. But that smile that he gave touched many lives. I mean, like I say, at his funeral, I still don't know half of the people that came. There was a man that came from High V that just saw his obituary on the paper and and they sent the food they sold some of the food for half a price and they gave his stuff away for for him and uh, it's just incredible. It's it's just incredible how many people knew him and all the nurses that worked with him. Sometimes PHS would say, Well, you know, this nurse needs a little break. They need a little encouragement. And when a nurse needed encouragement, they would send them to our home to work with Stephen. So I know that he touched many of his nurses. In fact, every once in a while, one of them will text me and say, I just had a dream with Stephen and I want to tell you about it. Oh. So we are still in touch with so many of them. And just reiterating what you had stated, Stephen truly was very far from being a vegetable. He had quite a personality and brought a lot of life to the party. Absolutely. <laughs> he was, I mean, he was a character. He he had such a precious uh, personality. And, and it was interesting because this is kind of like something we did, our family. I never did this in public, but I created a voice for Stephen. And I would think of the things that Stephen would say. And it was my way of connecting him with his, his older brother, Pedro. And if we would go to the zoo, I would tell Pedro about the animals that we were seeing and, and how Stephen might have perceived them and the things that he might have said. So I made this voice for Stephen. Well, Stephen learned that that was his voice. 
<laughs> and and when I would speak for him, he would just about fly out of his wheelchair. I mean, he <laughs> and I would pick fights with Pedro at the time Pedro was little, and he would get really frustrated with with Stephen because although I was speaking, Stephen would get really engaged, and Pedro would be like, "Stephen, stop it!" And he would get so frustrated. You know, but Stephen really would enjoy those moments to the point that uh, we all got so used to his voice that when Stephen passed away, the first time that I tried to use his voice, none of us could hear it. So I stopped doing it for many years. Just recently, I started saying it again when I feel like like Pedro just graduated. So I would speak like Stephen and say, I am so proud of you, buddy boy. But I would say it in Stephen's voice. Yeah. And uh, it's our little way to keep Stephen with us. And I made him very naughty because he was. <laughs> so I gave him a very naughty personality. And, and the things that he said, it was always like, you know, Picking a fight and saying that he knew math better than everybody else and he could teach Pedro. <laughs> so we connected that way. And Stephen definitely knew that that was him speaking. And he would totally love it. I mean, he would totally get engaged and, and get involved with that. <laughs> and talk to us a little bit about how really this started where you had a call to missions. And that did not play out like what you thought it was going to do. Right. And that was very hard because, in fact, I was talking to one of our kids here in Bible school this week because they are going through some seasons that they don't understand. And I was telling them, when we went to Fiji, we knew that we were in the perfect will of God to go there. And we felt like God was doing what needed to be done in Fiji through a feeble effort, so we, we saw some results and we were excited about, we wanted to go into missions. And when we had to come back, it was really hard for us to wrap our heads around it because we just couldn't understand. Not that, you know, I never asked the Lord why he gave Stephen to us, but I asked the Lord, why did he take us to Fiji? to send us back within two years. That didn't make any sense at all to us. And uh, at the time, I, I had a very hard time with missionary services when they would come to the church and present their burden to the field that they were sent. And I would feel like we were not good enough even to go to the mission field. And that was why God had brought us back. And that's how I felt at, at the time. But looking back now, I realized that my mind was just locked into this little box of what I felt a mission field looks like. Mm. And uh, I thought that this is the path of missions and we would take the traditional path of missions, which is you raise your funds, you actually physically go overseas 
and you minister there. God had a different plan for us. He still used us in the mission field, but from the U.S. So we were here, and the church was started in Nimbu because of Stephen. So it was kind of like God saying, you know, I'm not geographically limited. Mm. Whether you are overseas or not, I'm still using you to make a difference overseas. I'm still using you to not only touch their lives over in Nimbu, but to touch lives even here. I mean, at church now, Jen, I don't know if you remember. I mean, we, we used to be mostly, you know, Americans, whites. I, I say we, but I'm really from Brazil. So <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying we. <laughs> the church used to be mostly white Americans and all that. And now our church is such a basket and I love it. I mean, we have many people from Asia, Karen people, and and African people, and Mexicans, and people from Peru and Colombia. I mean, you name it. I mean, we have in the church, and to a point, we feel like we are in the mission field, and uh, it's just amazing what God is doing, you know. Not only that, but we get to be a part of pouring into young people, into young lives. And I guess the greatest honor in my life, besides being the mother of Pedro and Stephen, is to be called Mom Reed at the Bible school here at the Apostolic Bible Institute, to be able to pour my life into their lives, knowing that they will go forward and they will touch many other lives more so than I could. And you talked a little bit earlier about how that season of just even coming back to the U.S., you know, you really entered into a time of depression. Talk to us a little bit about what it was like coming out of that, but also maybe some of the things that were just constantly bombarding your mind in that time. Because I know that there's a lot of people who face disappointments in life and can hit a very low point in that season of depression. And I'm not comparing everybody to everybody, but I'm just saying, why don't you talk to us a little bit about since you've experienced that and kind of come out the other side, why don't you just touch on that? I think to me, the three main things that, uh, and I hope I will remember all three, they come so quickly and go. But the three things that really affected me was, one, I felt like I had failed our toddler. I had been telling him, you are going to have this sibling that you can run bike with, that you can play, you can you know, go kickball and do whatever you want to have fun. And when his sibling came, it wasn't exactly what mom had told him it would be. Not only that, his sibling took so much time that in the life's completely changed that I wasn't able to be there as much for him. So that was a big deal. The other thing was, Will anybody love my child? 
Will anybody love this child? They're so different. In my mind, I could see him being bullied because, you know, he had all these uh, special needs because he was different, because he didn't fit. I was like, I want people to love him. I don't want him to be despised. And that was really huge for me. I really couldn't bear the thought of my child not having the love of others, not only mom and dad, but, you know, people at the grocery stores or because many times people don't know how to respond when they see a child with special needs. They don't know what to do, what to say. And I was so afraid that he would not be loved. And the other thing was the uncertainty of it all. Because when we left the U.S., my husband had a really good job. He used to work for Blue Cross Blue Shield at the time. And I also worked and we had a nice home. We had, you know, a young couple in America. We had everything we thought we needed. We sold all that and we went to the mission field. And now we were coming back home. We didn't have a home, we didn't have a car, we didn't have jobs. We had a child that was very ill, a toddler, and our 13 suitcases. That's all we had when we came back. And that was very scary for me personally. And the feeling also of abandoning the field is something that we we had to work towards for so long and now now what you know we have to leave everything behind so that was not easy but as we came back the grants at the apostolic bible institute they are just phenomenal people I mean, Sister Grant met me at the airport at four o'clock in the morning with a van and a car. The van to, to take our suitcases back to the Bible school and the car to take us to the hospital. And we came back. They had an apartment set up for us, food, furniture, everything, and a car waiting for us in the parking lot that was made available for us to use as we needed it. And we were so surrounded by love. And people loved us and people loved Stephen. And I thought, we are going to be okay. You know, people do love us and they do love Stephen. We are going to be okay. So that is how I start coming out of it. It was just to realize that our friends were not going to abandon us because of this baby, which seems irrational to think that your friends would abandon you. But when you are in that situation, I don't think we are always rational. I mean, you were just, you know, everything's right on your face all the time. And all you can see is your immediate need. So it's hard to break through beyond that. And with Stephen at such a young age and then growing, although not growing like a typical child would grow and you talking about not even always being able to touch him without the fear of breaking a bone what happened physically even for you like having a child with special needs you know having the wheelchair having 
the nursing staff having just the, and I don't want to call it wear and tear on your body, but just the things that happens physically when your child is just that dependent on you. Yeah, I I still feel it. I think on the 13 years of Stephen's life, I don't really know how much we slept. I know that the first few months we didn't. Uh, the first few months, my husband and I would take turns and one would stay up until midnight, one o'clock with him. And then we would switch and the other would stay up the rest of the night with him because he was in a continuous feeding with all his acid reflux. If he would cough and suffocate, anytime he coughed, we jumped out of bed. We really didn't sleep much because we lived in small apartments and we heard every time that the feeding pump beeped or the oximeter went off, all those beepings. And um, we didn't sleep much once. The nursing came in, it was a blessing because I could lay down a Sunday afternoon and take a nap. And uh, my husband too, it was a blessing. But with that, you kind of lose your privacy because you always have somebody home. I remember one time when we were all here, the nurses, I was here working in the kitchen. And and Pedro, I, I think he was probably 12 years old. And he came to the kitchen and said, Mom, can we go to the bedroom and talk? And I said, sure. So I dropped everything and I came to the bedroom and I say, what do you want to talk about? And he said, nothing. I just want to be alone with you. And so you, you lose a lot. So unless you have gone through it, it's very hard to explain what it feels like. You are tired and you can be irritable. Stephen also had a gait trainer, which he loved it. It's like a walker for special needs child. They, they are fully supported. And Stephen loved walking. So our evenings when Stephen was well was just turning him around in a little hallway he would walk to one end of the hallway, we would turn him around, and he would walk to the other end of the hallway, we would turn him around, <laughs> keep that all evening long because it was something that he really did enjoy. I could never just get in a car and, oh, we forgot to buy milk, let me run to the grocery store. There was no such a thing because before I could run to the grocery store, I needed to make sure that I had somebody that was trained home with Stephen that would take care of Stephen if an emergency should occur. Same thing with going to any store, for that matter, or any place. Many times, even at church, I would go to church, and uh, if Stephen was especially loud that evening, I would end up in a vestibule with him. Uh, you know, that's where everybody else sees. I feel like I had not been to church for 13 years because when I went, I was with him and my attention was always on him, on his needs. So there are a lot of things that having a child is so dependent. There are a lot of things that you can't do that you don't think about it. You can just jump in your car right now and go do whatever you want. 
But if you have a child like that, you can't. You just have to plan. Mm -hmm. Every vacation was very well planned with, um, I would always leave a letter saying that if he had an emergency, that the nurses were allowed to make decision for him and all those things. Yeah, our lives were very structured, I guess we'll say. But I think the two things that were the worst was the lack of sleep and the lack of privacy. And mm -hmm. then third, as he was getting a little older, I was having issues lifting him. So my, my back is not good. I've ruined my back lifting the hospital bed or lifting him. One time I tried lifting Steven from his wheelchair and I couldn't support his weight. So I kind of just went down to the floor with him. And I was very thankful that Pedro was at home that day. And I asked him to provide me the support I needed to get off the floor with Steven because I basically just went down with Steven on my lap. And I just couldn't get up. If I didn't have somebody with me, I would not have been able to get up. So just things like that. You know, people invite you to go over for Thanksgiving or for Christmas. Come and have a meal with us. We couldn't. Many of the homes have steps that lead into the house. You know, they were not homes ready for wheelchair. We just couldn't go anywhere. So. In a way, you feel kind of a little isolated as well. Not because people want to isolate you, but just because it's just a little bit more complicated to get around sometimes. And my two usual questions I always ask for parents or families that have special needs kids that are in the middle of it, kind of walking through that season of their life. What would you turn around and encourage them with through the things that you've just learned through the life of Stephen? I would say value every minute of it. Just cherish it. You, you go so fast. When Stephen passed away in 2018, I look at him on bed and I thought, babe, if I knew that I would only have short 13 years with you, I have enjoyed you so much more instead of worrying about tomorrow. Would I have the help I need? Would I have all the medical support I need? I had a tendency to worry about all those things. And I thought, if I just knew I only had this short 13 years with you, I would have had so much more fun with you. I would have enjoyed you so much more. And just learn from them. They are just special, special, special people. They have a lot to offer. They are just so pure and so sincere and just so whole. You know, they, they love unconditionally. And sometimes even through their greatest pain, they still offer you a smile. And uh, I just want parents to enjoy, enjoy your child because that's your main purpose right now is to 
take care of that child that God has given you and to cherish them. So if and when the time comes that you have to say your goodbyes, you will have no regrets. You have done everything you could to help that child, to value that life. And for many people that have not walked the road of having special needs children or siblings, but maybe they know somebody who does have a special needs loved one, what's a good way for those who are not physically in that season, but more just onlookers, how can they be effective support? Yeah, for people interested in supporting for friends and, um, you know, even family. Of course, my family is in Brazil. I'm the only one here. And then his family, his sister is in Texas and his mother is in Casper, Wyoming, with his elder brother. So we have no family close to us. We only have friends. And the one thing that is spoke to me the most was the love that they shared and they tried to include Stephen in everything that they did like Stephen would go to Sunday school with his nurse and uh, he stayed in the toddler's classroom for several years before he moved to the next class and he stayed there several more years and uh, people to help us carry him on a wheelchair up on the steps to get him to Sunday school because they knew how important that was to him. And uh, I knew that, you know, my friends really enjoyed incorporating him on everything that they did. They had a Sunday school play and they turned Stephen's wheelchair into a police car. And he was part of the drama. <laughs> One year, they they had him um, hold a, a balloon that was a star. And he was the star for the Christmas play for the children. And so, you know, loving them and incorporating them in the fun. Don't just, you know, think, oh, they are special needs. They can't do this. They can't do that. Just help them to be part of everything you guys are doing. You know, just allow them to do it in their own way. I think that's what spoke to us the most. I know that in some cases, people you offer to come home and sit with the child and help. But I know in some cases, you have to be, like with Stephen's case, they had to be trained as a PCA as an aide to be able to give his medications and deal with the feeding tube and deal with all those things. In some cases, they don't have that great of a need. So you can always offer to give mom a break to take a nap or let her go to the grocery store without the wheelchair so she can actually push the grocery cart around, you know, because when you were pushing your wheelchair, you can't really do groceries. I mean, you can just buy one or two items, bring a meal, you know, if, if the family doesn't have to prepare a meal, if they're going through a crisis, just being able to find a meal that has been cooked, that is not Burger King, is not Subway, but is a, a real meal, homemade, which 
I don't think any of us cook homemade food anymore, but, you know, <laughs> a better meal anyway <laughs> that the family can actually enjoy, uh, enjoy together. And if you don't know what to do, just give them a gift card because they can go and buy the food that they like eating. Maybe they do like Burger King. Maybe they like McDonald's. Then if they have the gift card, they can go and help themselves to it. So there are many little things. Really, anything that you do will be much appreciated. Even that lady, I wish I knew who she was. I wish I knew her name so I could write her a thank you note. Because that has been 18 years later. I still remember her because she gave one bloom to Pedro, to my toddler. I still remember her. I have a special place in my heart for her because she saw a need and she did what she could. So don't be afraid to help. And I noticed when I'll take Steven sometimes to a park or zoo, children are very curious and they come and they're like, what is that? And the parent will be so nervous. They are like, oh no, don't, don't ask questions. Just, just come here, baby. And I'm like, no, that's okay. Let me talk to him. I'll explain to the child, you know, he's just not well. And that's how he gets his food. And the children are very accepting. Uh, children are not af afraid of special needs children. And the sooner they learn to be around them, the more comfortable they will be as they get older. You won't be that awkward, you know, oh, I don't know what to do with you <laughs> type of thing. So any little thing counts. Well, Ajiani, thank you so much for sharing. I, I appreciate I having you having me. I appreciate having the opportunity to share. You know, it's, it's quite amazing because I came in 2011. The fall was when I started coming. And so I didn't actually see you or Stephen much. And then in learning just more about who Stephen was and what you had gone through. And then just as the years went on and Stephen was more well and seeing him in his walker, even going around the, the parking lot, you know, and I would get to say hi to him. But sometimes, as a college student, and even people who know you, you can know a lot of the story, but not all of the big pieces of a story. So I am very thankful that you're willing to go back and to give some very personal insight to a very important part of your life. So thank you so much. My privilege. So thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to Say the Pain. Just a quick announcement that this summer we will be releasing one episode per month. The release date will be put out on Facebook. So if you're not following New Course Coaching on Facebook, feel free to do that. Otherwise, if you do subscribe to Say the Pain on Apple, Spotify, or Google, PS, you should if you're not doing that currently, it will let you know once the episode has been dropped. So right now, the next time we'll see you is in July, but until then, make a difference.